Welcome to Eurodollar University, everyone. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, off the air, we were talking about the article we're going to be discussing today, which is called Tick, Consistent, Coherent, Corroborated, Inflation Never Had a Chance. That was posted on the 17th of November at the Alhambra Investments blog. And we were talking about how you reread it this morning and you felt the punchline, the abstract, the message, the it wasn't there. So tell us, what are we trying to convey to the audience today? Well, with a lot of these things, you know, it, it's very complicated material. It's very dense material, and very esoteric material. So it, it already involves sort of a long, lengthy discussion. And sometimes people just want you to just cut to the chase, right? Just get to the conclusion and tell me what I want to know. And in this case, we could just, you know, we could write a one paragraph sentence that said, hey, dollar shortage this year, deflationary potential. But, you know, our goal and in, in my goal in writing these articles, our goal doing the show is to essentially have people work through these issues themselves, to think about, it, to do the thought experiments in their heads, to really consider how things work and why people are doing certain things. And so we kind of want to go through these, you know, long involved and maybe we could cut a little bit you know, down on the size and make maybe a little more brevity in doing it. But you know, the, the goal here is to get people to work through these things in the same way that we're thinking through them as well. And so we're kind of guiding you on a tour through the euro dollar system. But sometimes when you do that, with even with that, that, that those good intentions in mind, you maybe you, you leave a little bit too much off of the table. Maybe you didn't you didn't specify enough. And maybe as I was feeling this morning running through this article, maybe some of it was left. I left it too cryptic and, and too esoteric and maybe deserve a little bit more of a straightforward explanation rather than leaving it up to the reader to fill in all the blanks. Money supply combined with velocity should give us the inflation plus economy. And the punchline is that through September 2021, the Treasury International Capital Report is suggesting a deflationary context, not a inflationary one. And we're going to talk about that. Yeah, no, no I just, I mean, it not just, not just suggesting, I think the point here is it's strongly suggesting, in fact, it's unusually strongly suggesting it's every single piece lines up almost exactly. And as I said before, in a previous article about tick, you know, what's usually happens in these, during these periods is that, you know, things line up in general terms, but there's always a couple pieces that are just awry there. You know, it, it's a very complicated world. It's a very messy situation. So sometimes it's not exactly the same, but you can you can still tease out the general message. Where in 2021, it's like everything is lined up almost perfectly that says there's really no ambiguity here. And that that's I think it's a it's not just that, hey, there might be a, a deflationary dollar problem here. It's there is one. We just don't know how big it is. It's fascinating because the audience, the tens of viewers that we have are nodding their head and wondering the same thing I am. It's incredible how in the mainstream financial press, it's the exact opposite message. It's unambiguously inflationary recovery, reflation, takeoff, boom, is right around the corner. Well, at least that's my sense of it, Jeff. Maybe I'm exaggerating. Has the tone turned a little bit more negative recently? Is that I'm perceiving that or am I wrong? I think there's, you know, that's where you hear the term stagflation being thrown around. Everybody's still convinced inflation is going to be big because why not? The CPI is now the highest it's been in 30 years. So obviously there's inflation, at least according to the mainstream narrative, but yet the economy seems to be tailing off a bit, if not a little more than a little bit. So everybody's, okay, this must be what stagflation means. And it's, this is why we were very adamant, at least I am very adamant in, in, in saying is this inflation or is it not inflation? Because if it's inflation, 
you're not going to see the economy, the nominal economy, certainly that's not going to be tailing off. It's going to be continuing to accelerate. So if it's not inflation, if there's not money behind it, then something else is going on. The CPIs are high for other reasons that, as we've discussed in the past, these various episodes in the past where the CPI can go up over short run periods for reasons that have nothing to do with money or the economy. One of my uh, other jobs is to be Alistair Cook, the British narrator, introducer to Macro Peace Theater. And I do, no, he did Masterpiece Theater and I do Macro Peace Theater. And next week I'm going to read a report by the Bank for International Settlements, just a really short one, where they go into what is probably behind these consumer price increases. And they go into the supply chains, as we've been talking about, as well as the good surge. It's a good article, good little report, uh, lots of graphs, good stuff. So I guess we've talked about that before. Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, you can look forward to that next week. This week, right now, we're going to talk about the Treasury International Capital Report. The September data is out. Jeff, as you tell us in this article, wow, this has been around for 80 years, this report, some form of it. Incredible. Well before the euro dollar system was even created. Incredible. And so, you know, there's, you've got to respect the report that's been around that long time. And as you tell us, you respect this report for being pretty good in giving you a view into what's happening in the shadows. But it was never designed and never updated for the euro dollar system as it should have been. And one of the big things that are missing, you tell us right up front, is securities transformations, repo. One kind of repo is in there, but you would love to know about another kind of repo. Which kind of repo is in there? And which is missing? Yeah, we're going to go down the rabbit hole with all this stuff, because not only do you have, uh, you know, complicated real world processes, but you also have this layer of technical jargon that makes it often confusing with, with what you're talking about. But starting specifically with tech, you're right, Emil. It goes back to 1934, which is admirable because, you know, 1934 is a specific year at the bottom of the, the, the collapse of the Great Depression. You know, people in the Treasury Department said, Maybe we need to take a look at what banks are doing out inside and as well as outside the United States and how capital is flowing around the world, because that seems to be pretty important. But the problem with having a series that goes back to 1934 is that deeply embedded within it are its own 1934 style of biases. It's basically starting out in 1934 and you can update it now and again. But, and, you know, as things change over time, especially the you know, massive euro dollar re evolution that took place in the 50s and 60s. Maybe you're using an outdated worldview as well as an outdated series and an outdated format. And one of the biggest contributions or the biggest parts of this euro dollar ascendancy was repo and collateralized lending and all sorts of things like that. Even to this day, despite the fact that TICDAT has been updated several times and in several significant fashion, what they'll do if you read through the instructions, which I'm pretty sure everybody has, because <laughs> why wouldn't you? It says, do not, if to the, to the instructions to the banks that are reporting on these forms, you do not uh, report any resale or any repurchase agreement where the opposite side of the transaction doesn't have cash coming back. So in other words, if you're engaged in a security to, to, to security financing transaction, which collateral transformation, like if, if you're trading, a, you're lending out a treasury security and getting back, say, some form of junk euro bond, as collateral for your collateral, that doesn't get reported on TIC because the TIC data, the TIC series isn't really interested in the securities. They're more interested in the cash. So basically the instructions to the banks are you're only reporting things that have a cash component to it. 
which, you know, again, as you referred to, as you said, Emil, our audience is, is already well aware that's missing maybe the most important parts of how the modern system gets done. So in some ways we love tick, but in other ways that we just, we just have to, you know, this is the best, best we can do. So now we get into what's going, you know, what's going on specifically recently, or even just the last 14, 15 years, what, what's happening with resales and repurchases. And that, that brings in another problem too, because now we have to classify what everybody's doing. What is a repurchase? What is a resale versus what is a reverse repo? Because that's one of the things I left out of this tick article when I presented the chart that showed foreign official institutions that were engaging in these uh, collateralized repurchase agreements. What that really was, and I think some people might, might be able to recognize the pattern there, that's really the foreign repo pool that we've talked about before, but I think it's been a while since we've talked about foreign repo pool, which is essentially an accommodation the Federal Reserve Bank of New York has given to foreign FOIs, which are foreign official institutions, central banks and governments. And what they're doing is essentially as a correspondent node in the global payments network, it's an accommodation. So you think, okay, this is an accommodation for foreign official institutions, but why are they using these things only during specific periods of time? Why does the balance in, these, in this foreign repo pool that tick captures uh, why does it only go up during specific time periods? And again, from the Federal Reserve's perspective, this is called a reverse repo because the Fed always characterizes these transactions from the perspective of its counterparty. So let's break down what's going on here in the foreign repo pool and what it is that TIC is showing in parallel to the foreign repo pool, which is essentially from the Federal Reserve's counterparty's perspective, a reverse repo or a resale. So these foreign official institutions are essentially lending cash to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in exchange for U.S. Treasury collateral. So putting this in terms of what we were talking about before, it's the foreign official institution is actually borrowing treasuries from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York by putting up cash as collateral. That's why it gets captured on by tick, because there's a, a cash component to it that that gets reported on all of these various tick forms. And really the common explanation for the foreign repo pool, which is, you know, which is given from that, that, that guy at Credit Suisse that everybody always turns to as the, uh, the expert or the guru, he basically says that, well, it must be the foreign, the, the Federal Reserve is paying a higher, a higher repo rate to the, for this accommodation than otherwise that these, uh, these foreign official institutions could get in the marketplace. And that kind of gets reformed. That's the uh, mainstream narrative for the foreign repo pool, because what else could it possibly be? But when you start thinking about these things in terms of foreign official institutions are borrowing treasuries collateralized by cash, that opens up the door to so, so many different possibilities, especially in the realm of what doesn't get captured by TIC or any other data. And you've got two charts that we start off right in the front here on this article. Are you referring to the first one, which includes not only foreign official institutions, foreign banks, and other foreign and IROs, or are you now moved on to just the FOI? Well, the, two, the first chart that includes all of them is important because it shows that, you know, it's not just foreign official institutions that are engaged in these collateralized repurchase agreements, but specifically the second chart, which I think if anybody has ever seen a chart of the foreign repo pool, which is just specifically... Federal Reserve Bank of New York's uh, custodial accommodations, it matches that one pretty closely because that's really what TIC is picking up. TIC is picking up part 
of what is a maybe a possibly you know the beginning the beginning step of a, a much wider collateral chain where foreign official institutions are essentially borrowing collateral from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and posting their own cash as their collateral in this reverse repo. Now that in and of itself, you know, maybe that the explanation that's given is, oh, maybe the Fed's the Fed it really is paying a higher repo rate, and that's why the foreign institutions are more interested in doing this. But when you look at it from the perspective of borrowing treasuries, it's not necessarily that. And then we start thinking, okay, this foreign repo pool balance goes up, which means more foreign official institutions borrowing more treasuries during these same specific periods when we see all of these other things happening. So it doesn't sound like it would be a higher repo rate that is enticing foreign institutions to get a better return on their cash. It sounds more like we should look at this from the perspective of a resale or a reverse repo, which is they want to borrow more available treasuries during these periods when the rest of the euro dollar system is, is, is throwing off all of these signals of dollar shortage, collateral shortage, and all the things that go along with it. So the mainstream explanation, if you're just interested in, hey, just give me the answer, well, the mainstream media can give you an answer. But if you actually start thinking through these implications and going through the process of, of figuring out what are people doing, what must they be doing with all of these various complicated uh, transactions, then you start to realize this mainstream idea that you know foreign institutions are seeking out a better repo rate. Oh, by the way, we don't know what the Fed pays on the foreign repo pool. They don't publish it. So that's even speculation too. So if you you know if you're actually going through and thinking through all of these processes, you start to realize that that can't be the real reason. Why would why would the Fed pay a higher repo rate during dollar shortage periods? What if it's something else entirely? What if it has to do instead with borrowing collateral that seems to be in short supply during these very same periods? And so working through that in your head helps you understand what must really be going on, especially as we're doing here, if we can tie this into other things, other data and other market indications. And that's what we're looking at. What you were just discussing and teaching us, that's, that, that chart does not appear in this article. Am I right, Jeff? I'm trying to keep up. That's in the... Right. I mean, I debated about whether I should include the foreign repo pool and I'd left it Definitely. out because I didn't want to, I didn't want to, um, I wanted people to think this through. And that's one of the things that I thought about this morning. I'm like, well, maybe I should have added that in there for a little bit more clarity. So I I'm glad we're so. getting to go through this now is because now we can explain, you know, we can do a little bit more of detail and a little bit more straightforward explanation, but still having people work through it in their own heads about what must be going on because if it's, you know, the Federal Reserve paying a higher repo rate for foreign official institutions, that would be one hell of a coincidence, wouldn't it? Not just a coincidence, it would be four or five coincidences now, <laughs> you know, that's what we're really talking about. It's when you think about it, if you're just willing to give the, the media, give you an answer from that guy in, in Credit Suisse who says it's a higher repo rate, at least he's speculating it's a higher repo rate. Fine. You won't you won't you won't have any have any way of saying this is what's really happening. But if you actually go through the process and think about what these transactions are in a step-by-step -step basis, which you come to the conclusion you left with is that it can't be the repo rate. There has to be something else going on here. And where we started all this was the tick data doesn't give us the other part of it. Because why would foreign official institutions be borrowing treasuries to begin with? Well, if you think back to, say, July of 2016 and the Bank of Japan what did the Bank of Japan do in July 2016? Well, it did a couple things. And one of the 
one of the last things on the list of the, the press release was they engaged, they uh, initiated, or I think they expanded what was a treasury swap program, which was Japanese banks could go to the Bank of Japan and swap JGBs for U.S. treasuries. That doesn't get picked up on tick, as I started out saying, because that's a security for security transaction, and it's Bank of Japan with a Japanese bank. So th using that as an example, we can then think about what must be on the other side of these treasury, bar you know, these foreign official institutions borrowing treasuries in bunches during dollar shortages, maybe on the, the next step that is completely invisible, that's completely shadows, it's completely hidden, doesn't show up on tick, is that these foreign official institutions are then relending these treasuries in a security for security transaction to other counterparties in their own jurisdictions or maybe outside their jurisdictions, we don't know, who maybe are running into their own collateral problems. So we put all these things together and what we have is during dollar shortage periods, which we know correspond very closely to collateral shortage periods, we see an elevated use at the Federal Reserve's foreign repo pool which doesn't seem to be tied to a higher repo rate. Instead, thinking about it along the lines of these foreign institutions borrowing treasuries, when foreign institutions don't need to borrow treasuries for their own purposes, we can then understand that there's probably other steps involved that are hidden that aren't that big of an intuitive leap when you go through the work and dig out all these transactions. All of that is between the lines, Jeff. We haven't even gotten to the article yet. <laughs> the whole... None of that is in the article. There's no graph. None of everything this is, you yeah, just this said. This is what I wanted to explain outside the article because I left, I, I think I left a little bit too much it's out of it. It's <laughs> a whole article. It's a whole show. And that article itself was, you know, I think 1500. I mean, it was already, it was already pretty lengthy. So yeah, 12 pages. So, yeah, printer, the, so the message is, look, it's a really good thing to try to work through all of these transactions. It's a really good idea to think through why must this person or this entity be doing that and what's going on? What other possibilities are, are could be could explain what's happening? Very, very informative, very educational, Jeff. I mean, you also talked about what's happening in Japan that the uh, let's see here and the Caribbean that. Um, U.S. banks are not lending to Japan and the Caribbean Eurodollar redistribution centers as much as they did in 2020, November and December. Uh, we see a steep drop, suggesting deflationary potential. You also raise the U.S. dollar in here and China and you, how the U.S. dollar is rising and in any number of different ways we can measure it. Yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're tying yes, this back ahead. to all sorts of data and market prices that all give off the same signal. Right. It's all, hey, can we find corroboration for this deflationary, the shortfall, dollar shortage, collateral shortage story that we're starting to see in the, you know, in the foreign repo pool, for example? What does that tell us? Well, if we think about it in terms of shortage of treasuries, that makes sense. And we look at the rest of the tick data, as you just mentioned, you know, U.S. bank claims on Japan and, and the Caribbean, which means fewer dollars being redistributed between those two very important redistribution nodes. That is very much consistent with dollar shortage, dollar tightness. And oh, by the way, it ties in to the month. We're talking about December 2020, all of this year, growing, not shrinking, you know, growing problems, not, uh, not growing dollar balances. And then there's, you know, all these other indications, including tick data, you know, China, China holding, Chinese and Belgian holdings of U.S. treasuries, which is a surefire signal that they're having dollar problems too. Those holdings have been declining since January. Not only that, CNY, the, the Chinese yuan's exchange rate, since January, it's changed. It's no longer rising in value, which would be consistent with reflation. 
it's at least sideways, which is something different entirely. The dollar's exchange value in broad fashion, it's been going up since January. Uh, U.S. Treasuries and global bond yields since mid-March, they've flattened out. In fact, you know, some of the global bond yields flat started to uh, flatten out and drop in February. So it's one thing after another, after another, after another, after another. It's consistent, it's coherent, and it's corroborated. It can't be, going back to our original piece here, it can't be that the Federal Reserve is paying a higher repo rate than the market is, and that's enticing foreign official institutions to engage in a reverse repo with the Fed. Instead, it's got to be something up because this happens over and over and over again where if we look at the same transaction from the perspective of foreign official institutions borrowing treasuries, collateralizing that, bar that borrowing with cash, and then doing something else with those treasuries in their local jurisdiction in dollar terms as well, all of it put together, you get this consistent story of a global dollar shortage, deflationary potential, not just, you know, September, but over the last, you know, over this entire year and including some of last year too. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've done some hundred plus episodes and this is the very first one where we didn't touch on anything in the article anything in my notes i enjoyed it as much i hope you enjoyed it as much as i do jeff we're going to move on we're going to talk about china in part two of this episode we're going to read the tea leaves regarding their sixth plenum i'm going to ask you what a plenum is and we're going to look at some of their recent economic activity and data Welcome back to Eurodal University. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, we're going to talk about China. We're going to talk about their sixth plenum and their recent economic accounts and their reports about fixed asset investment and retail sales and industrial production and what it might mean for the world's second biggest economy, as well as for the rest of the world. We just did an interview with uh, Russell Napier the other day, and we were talking a lot about China and how it's resembling a little bit some of the things that we witnessed in the Asian financial crisis. Though it may appear strong, it's, uh, it's got some characteristics that we need to focus on lest there be a sudden change. And I think the key was that do we expect President Xi, Xi to be dictated to about internal monetary conditions? In the previous episode that we just talked about, we talked about how the U.S. dollar is rising. Well, the CNY, the yuan, is rising relative to the U.S. dollar. It's a very strong currency in a highly leveraged economy that has some of the highest real rates in the world. This doesn't seem like a recipe for success. No, and I think what you know, Mr. Napier's point was that you know there are contradictions that abound here. That you know, when you don't have a fixed exchange rate, then it's it's tough to solve. It's almost like a Gordian knot, which how do you untangle what is essentially a mess? And as you just said, Emil, is the Chinese government going to continue to allow monetary policy be dictated by outside terms, which is one of the strongest points I think that we were making in the in their interview with, with Russell Napier was that, look, as much as these monetary policies are claimed to be independent in national terms, they're actually not. This is a global a global monetary architecture that at the very least enforces certain constraints on domestic monetary policies, assuming there's any money in those domestic policies at all, which there isn't actually in China. There is an external-internal symbiosis or external-internal problem at times that does force internal monetary policies to adjust to these externalities. I wonder when, if ever, the politicians are going to decide to throw off the system. 
because I don't believe that we're at the mercy of this system and this symbiosis, but just like Neo in the Matrix and the machines, there's a huge cost that's going to come from turning them off. And I believe that we could take control of internal monetary policy, just like China can, the United States could, but the cost would be tremendous, capital controls and an entirely new system of uh, finance. It would be a revolution, which may be necessary during this kind of moment. Last episode, we were talking about the fact that the tick data came into being in 1934. No surprise, because the people that came into power in the United States in 1934 looked around, they saw a complete disaster, and they knew they needed a new way of doing things. I'm always bewildered and amazed that we are 20-some, no, what year are we in? 14, 15 years into what I like to call the silent depression, and the politicians, the people in charge, and the public still hasn't put into power individuals that will take us on a completely new path, one that might involve dramatic disconnections from the monetary system. Jeff, have I- But you know who has? You know who has made that change? Who? China. That's Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping in the sixth plenum. That's what we're, this whole, this whole segment is going to be talking about. The Chinese realized that 2008 was not a one-off event. They realized that there is a silent depression. They realized it's not very silent in China, or at least has the potential to not be very silent in China. And Xi's mandate ever since he took power in 2012 has been to radically redraw socialism with Chinese characteristics back closer to its original purpose under Mao Zedong, which is essentially what you just talked about, Emil. They've had all of those very difficult conversations and said, the cost of us transforming society outside of the, you know, the, the uh, way that the China had been working for the last 30 years under Deng Xiaoping, you know, especially from the 90s forward, it no longer is going to work. So the cost of not doing something might be much higher than doing something. As, as, as big as those costs of doing this political transformation are already and are likely to be, They've obviously judged the cost of not doing something to be something along the lines of, say, the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. The risks are that large. The potential costs are that large where they've already taken the plunge. It's just that that message has not filtered out to the rest of the Western world, which has this sort of fascination with China, a sort of a, you know, China, the Chinese communists are put, are put upon a pedestal as if there's some long range, deep thinking philosophers who are eating the West's lunch over every single facet of, of everyone's life. And that's just, I don't think that's true. And I think that's clouded the real message, which, as I say, the Chinese communists have been very honest and open about what they're doing here. And if you take yourself outside of the Western worldview that puts them up on that pedestal, you can see what they're doing and why they're doing it. I think it's, uh, it's just human nature and greed to put that system and a top and, and give it a plaudits. And I'm thinking of the elites because they've achieved a lot. They're, they're successful and they naturally think, well, that's because I know what I'm doing. And look at that system over there. They put the people in the elite position in charge of the whole nation. They don't have to deal with the humans and markets and complex systems. They just decide what needs to be done. So I think it's natural for the elites to put China and other dictatorships on some sort of pedestal like they did with the Soviet Union, some sort of sick romance of 
but it's just a matter of power and corruption and greed well, and not no, giving I think, the- you know there's there's you know to play devil's advocate a little bit i think there is a little bit of of maybe mis, misjudged nobility in the idea of a technocratic society, a top-down structure that isn't, you know, as messy as the Russians had, you know, Leninism and Stalinism, that maybe isn't as bad as Maoism. If we have these enlightened philosophers that Plato spoke about, you know, all those millennia ago, who are willing to, or if we allow them to create these optimal outcomes, then society would be truly harmonious. That's really what Karl Marx was trying to get at, was that we can create, at least in his mind, we could create a harmonious society if we allow these technocratic ideals to be implemented across a wide front. And then eventually we wouldn't even need them because we'd have a very flat, structured, non-hierarchical society where we don't really have to work and we can all just be just be human beings together. That's that was the Marxist dream. And I think there's a lot of especially as you pointed out, establishment elites who that that's very tempting to say, yeah, this top down technocratic structure. That's that sounds very good. That sounds like For something me. we should pursue. Yeah. So let's For them. let's hype it up. Well, and then we're going to talk about this in part three: stability. That there's that assumes that there's going to be no change to the human condition, or that we don't go through cycles, long-term cycles. Yes, we could have a philosopher king right now, and no doubt someone would be very good. And we've seen many of them throughout history. But then the next generation comes along, and then the next generation, and things go to hell. You don't have philosopher kings, legends in coming around, around one right after the other. You have one George Washington, then a Lincoln, then a Roosevelt. You don't have them coming around year after year, generation after generation. And so that's the conceit, I think, is that they assume this sort of stability, as we're going to talk about with velocity in part three, as this constant human, what nature system that is unchanging, but that's not how it is. Markets can perceive the fluctuations of that. Jeff, I'm completely off the uh, the We're script. script again. Boy, that's two episodes in a row. Yeah, I think that's good though because you know there's these these big caveats that's probably good every once in a while to really talk about them in very specific terms rather than beat around the bush. And that's you know really what we're talking about is you know big things here. Chinese ice cream, November sixteenth, twenty twenty one. Alhambra Investments, that's where you posted this article. And you talk about the sixth plenum. I'm not quite sure what a plenum is, but according to the internet, it's a full gathering of the entire committee. I believe it's not the National Party Congress, which is some 2,500 people, but the Central Committee, 350 people. Only the most important, well, only the most important of the first group. And then there's even smaller committees and even smaller power bases and things like that. Yeah. So they've gotten together now for the sixth time, and the sixth one is traditionally does this and this, and the fifth one does this and that. And Jeff, very interesting, I noticed that the very first plenum of this 19th Central Committee, which I think corresponds to the 19th Party Congress, is that one took place in October 20, October 25th, 2017, a very important date, which I think was when the Chinese and she announced that we were going for quality growth over quantity growth, that they announced, that's it, we'll see, we're, we're checking out of the euro dollar system. Well, in or, Chinese communist terms, that's exactly right, but in putting it in their own language, in their own terms, what they said was we're checking out of the Deng era. So what has happened in the sixth plenum is essentially what's been happening and what's been unfolding in slow, incremental, methodical terms beforehand, 
the sixth plenum just put it in very plain terms, the Chinese history has been divided into essentially three specific eras. The first era, which we're supposed to applaud Mao Zedong, he established the Chinese Communist Party and put the China on the path towards socialist uh, paradise. Never mind that whole Great Leap Forward and Cultural Revolution. Those are just baby step mistakes, you know, got to break some eggs to make an omelet kind of a thing. And then Deng Xiaoping came along after Mao died in the 1970s and said, what he really said was, Mao really screwed up so badly. China is such a backwards place. We need to embrace a capitalist phase in order to create an actually legitimate chance or a plausible chance to realize socialist paradise. So the phase two under Deng Xiaoping was this modified sort of quasi-capitalist state that really took off in the early 1990s with his Southern tour, which just so happened to coincide, just random chance, with the, with the fall of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. So that was this, the middle phase of Chinese socialist history was this quasi-capitalist phase, which created communism doesn't create wealth. It only redistributes it. And if you don't have any wealth created to redistribute, communism isn't going to work. So we, the, in the sixth plenum that just concluded, what was decided was Deng Xiaoping's quasi-capitalist phase was a necessary but intermediate step to what is now Xi Jinping's other stage. And the sixth plenum says that this third stage of communism, uh, socialism in China, or socialism with Chinese characteristics, is going to be some combination of Deng and Mao. But we're not going to go entirely back to Mao Zedong because that would just mean millions of people are going to starve to death. But we're not going to allow the excesses or the inequality, pollution, any of these other things that had that had been allowed and encouraged under Deng's capitalist transformation. And so that's where you get the quality growth versus quantity growth. But the question is, if you have this market-based economy or even this quasi-capitalist economy and system, and you try to introduce, or at least go back to a little bit of Mao Zedong, doesn't that kind of spoil the whole thing? Because those are really incompatible ideas. And that's really the, the, uh, the negative potential or the dramatic uh, question from the Sixth Plenum and really the 19th Party Congress as a whole. Jeff, how is this being characterized in the media, the Sixth Plenum, the Western media? I don't think it's been characterized, at least in those stark terms. I think there's there's a sense that something's going on in China, but I don't think you're going to hear that Xi Jinping era is going to be a, a clean break from the Deng Xiaoping era, because that would kind of spoil the whole inflation narrative, as would the recent economic data from China which is being characterized itself around the world as robust. As you saw in the Wall Street Journal article from a couple of days ago when the Chinese released their data, the, the headline blared, you know, blared how there was robust activity in China's factory as well as consumer sector. And you wonder what the hell they're talking about because the data was uniformly awful. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't as bad as it had been in August when the Chinese had locked everything down again for their, their Delta COVID outbreaks or the regional Delta COVID outbreaks. But even recovering from those outbreaks, this data is outside of the last couple of years. If you had said four and a half percent retail sales growth year over year in, say, 2019, people would have been panicking because before then, seven percent was the floor. And now we're talking about four and a half percent. How in the hell can you characterize that as robust unless you're trying to sell this narrative and, and sell the idea that, hey, these Western liberal communists are going to continue to be Western liberal communists and they're their uh, their way of doing top down central planning management, this technocratic ideal is still is still benefiting Chinese society and the rest of the world because 
Look at how great China's economy is doing when it's really not. Yes, retail sales September 2021 versus 2021 20 was 4.4% increase. In October, 4.9% year over year, an increase, I get, you know, a big jump there. Year to date, it was 14.9% if you compare year to date to 2020. But if, as you said, if you look back two years, that September to 2019 comparison is only 3.8% growth compounded in October to two years growth is 4.6%. And the 2021 year-to-date versus 2019 year-to-date is only 4%. Uh, I, I kind of did a word salad there, Jeff, but you, you'll be able to explain it. But I think some people are saying in the media, hey, retail sales are doing and growing better than industrial production. And this is what we've been waiting for because the Chinese response had been to push the industrial production and fixed asset investment side, unlike the rest of the world, who tried to support consumption. And now we're seeing it in the consumption sector. And I guess they're saying this is going to continue with industrial production and fixed asset investment doing really well and, and therefore rebalancing and a runaway Chinese economy. Is that the robust I don't, you know, I, I, I'm really kind of puzzled by it because I don't see robust anywhere. And I don't think it's any honest person looking at the, the data, which you can see is a clean break. And this is, I think, you know, it goes back to something you and I were talking about in another guest episode with Bilal Hafiz from uh, MacroHive, where we talked about the Chinese using this COVID policy or zero COVID policy to essentially kind of reinforce what's going on in the economy. In other words, they're using the COVID pandemic as sort of a scapegoat to say, the economy's not coming back, and the, it's the, really the pandemic's fault. We're doing the best that we can. And so, you know, this idea that the Chinese system is, is robustly recovering from the pandemic, the Chinese aren't even buying that. I don't think that anybody can legitimately look at this data and say there's something really good going on here because it's not. By any objective measure, things are materially worse post-2020 than they were pre-2020, when in 2018 and 2019, that was already a bad situation. So we're materially worse than what was a bad situation. And bringing this back into the political discussion, the Communist Party has basically said, going all the way back to the 19th Party Congress, whatever happens in the economy happens in the economy. We're no longer going to try to ride to the rescue of not just the China's economy, but the, the rest of the global economy around the world. We're going to let things fall, let the chips fall where they may, because we've been prepared, we've been preparing for this. For many, many years, the era of Deng's quasi-capitalist phase is over. And the sixth plenum that was just conducted or just wrapped up this year basically is the the wrap, the bow on the wrapping, which says this is it. We're in a new era. And the new era for China is not one that has a lot of economic growth. And if it doesn't have an economic growth, then the Chinese are going to be more focused on political measures to deal with it than economic measures to try to get out of it. I have found the robust exports, Jeff. October's monthly trade surplus was the highest China has ever recorded. In the first 10 months of 2021, exports were up 22.5% year on year to generate a trade surplus of roughly 3.6% GDP. Great. But the, this is, that's at risk. That's at the... That's at the courtesy of the European Union and the United States of America and the political elites there 
and tolerating that. Because in a world where the economic pie is not really growing, what that means is that China is taking demand away from those countries. And the question is, when are the political elites going to institute some sort of measure where they say, you know, we're tired of uh, sending money and jobs over there. We want to get more votes, uh, more elections won, and we're going to pursue policies such as tariffs and trade wars, which are perfectly natural and not necessarily orange man related. These are perfectly natural during these kind of weak economic periods. So I see a boom in China, but it's coming at the expense at the rest of the world, beggar thy neighbor. And how long is that going to be tolerated? Or how long is it going to last on its own? Because a lot of it, especially this year, has been related to PPE material. <laughs> it's just the pandemic itself, at least in the early part of this year. And then the rest of it is at risk already from a global global economy rolling over and falling apart, too. So there's there's any number of dangers, which, again, I think uh, outside of the Wall Street Journal's headline, the Chinese Communist Party is at least aware of and probably more aware of than we give them credit for. In part three of this episode, we're going to discuss the equation of exchange, money, velocity, GDP. And it's very exciting. And Jeff, how would you sell that? I don't know how to sell it. I thought it was a very good article. Money printing equals inflation. So let's look. If we've got the CPI, there must be money printing. So let's let's see if we can find the money. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Eurodollar University. We're going to talk about money, velocity, printing, and a surge in the M2 money, what do we call it, money measure in the United States and whether that means inflation is out of control in the United States. I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, you write daily, more than daily, twice a day at the Alhambra Investments blog, but you also post weekly at the Real Clear Markets site. And this week, or last week, is where we're going to right now. The title of the article was, We Can't Depend on the M's, Which Only Produce Bad V's, November 12, 2021. And you start out the story by talking about Simon Newcomb. Who is that? Yeah, Simon was a 19th century economist, and an economist in in a sort of a grassroots, sort of a bottom-up kind of way. He kind of fell into it. He was an accomplished academic to beforehand. He was influenced by, uh, uh, um, forget who it was, uh, never mind. Anyway, John he was Stuart influenced Mill. by uh, John Stuart Mill and Say and Say's Law and things like that to take up economics, which was, to him, he took sort of an engineering perspective because that was his background. He thought, well, you know, John Stuart Mill had kicked around this idea that we could kind of create a formula for uh, how an economy works. And he came up with what he called the, the equation of societary circulation, which then Irving Fisher borrowed and, and became the equation of exchange that many people might be familiar with today. But essentially, if we have money, we have the circulation of money that can tell us about output or income, as well as the changes in prices. Because as we know, money is our inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So money supply versus velocity. Is, uh, money supply combined with velocity should give us the inflation plus economy. So if I remember correctly, that's M times V equals P times Q. Is that right? Yeah. And there's all different modern versions of it. So instead of P, you know, Irving Fisher had T, which included financial transactions. I think the more modern versions are Y, which is national income rather than 
essentially, uh, you know, everything possible that Fisher had it, as Simon Newcomb was talking about, because let's face it, if you're printing money, as people I'll talk about too, some of it ends up in asset prices. I'd love, okay, so V is what we're going to be focused on, and M. And so the idea was Newcomb concerned because he was writing, when was he writing? The end of the 19th century? And it yep. was very interesting that that was in the 19th century where we started observing these remarkable economic events, which we now call depressions, where all of a sudden people were put out of work for nothing that happened to them, but somewhere far away, some sort of destruction of money. Uh, is that right, Jeff? Is that what motivated him is to try to explain these uh, remarkable economic collapses and then resurgences? I don't know if that's specifically what motivated him, but it certainly gave you can read if you read anything he wrote and it certainly gave his 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 quest a sense of urgency. Right. Because he was looking for the answers anyway. And then, as you pointed out, Emil, exactly right. There were these these mass widespread depressions that, you know. Back then, you know, we kind of take it for granted nowadays, but back then nobody had really any idea what was going on. The study of economics was very new. Any any serious study of economics was very new. And as these depressions were themselves even newer than the study of economics, it was sort of hard to put all these things together. And so there was a very, very strong emphasis on seeing how we can maybe come up with an, a way to really figure out how the structure or the machinery of exchange, as Henry George called it, how does this all fit together and how does it actually work? And what they realized back then was that, as Milton Friedman realized in, when he formulated his, his, his hypothesis, was that, look, money and depression, those two things at the very least go together. And as we've known throughout history, you know, going back to Copernicus and, and Isaac Newton, that when you cheapen money, you get inflation. So money, inflation, also money, depression, deflation, all of these things are worked tied together. So if we can figure out the money side, which includes circulation and velocity, that should give us at least a very good understanding of what's going on in the real economy and therefore its actual potential. Circulation velocity, or as Newcomb called it, uh, rapidity. That's the key point because it's not just about having enough money. It's whether or not it's moving. And you tell us, what if it's stuck somewhere? What if it is being hoarded as in a depression? Because money all of a sudden is very valuable. It's not being used as a tool to conduct exchange, but it has become something so valuable that you rather hoard it than conduct exchange and the economy slows down. Thinking and the other part of that, right, is, you know, as Newt Wixel said, interest rates. Interest rates are supposed to, in theory, take, uh, you know, take control of that redistribution. They're supposed to influence redistribution and velocity, right? If interest rates go up high enough, that's supposed to induce those who have hoarded money to then dehoard money and get it back into the economy if there's that much rate of return. But as we also see, especially in the modern age, going back to the Great Depression, and again in 2008, sometimes interest rates don't work in that way. In fact, we see instances, as we've talked about before, last March, for example, or September of 2019 in the repo market. We see instances where interest rates actually create a situation of backwards elasticity. You know, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, we're talking about money supply and velocity, how they relate to, you know, real economic conditions, but it, it doesn't always work that well in practice versus theory. Well, that's what the question that you ask. If you could make the equation on the money side balance so elegantly, say goodbye to depressions or runaway inflation. 
So why doesn't the Fed or any central bank do this? And then you gave a very, very funny answer here. Do you remember what it is, basically? <laughs> okay, the problem with the equation of exchange is that it really isn't an equation at all. There is no mathematical proof which proves each of its two sides as an equality. The problem with velocity is how there is simply no way to directly measure it. And the problem with the whole idea is that it presumes the world as a static place where the variables are the same or like enough forever after. Yeah, it assumes that what's M today will be M tomorrow. It assumes that what motivates V today will be the same thing that motivates V tomorrow. And those are arrogant assumptions that are ahistorical because throughout history, history is history is history for one reason, because it, uh, humanity doesn't stand still, especially in the modern uh, industrial age where we're inventing and innovating and doing all sorts of great things that just simply change the way we do such things. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that in terms, if we're counting on a static society to create or a static assumption to create these these uh, these sort of mathematical models of how we think things work in the theoretical level, they're not going to have much use in practical purposes because they don't have much use practically. They're not a realistic representation of how things actually go. Because in different eras, different moments, you the money requirement is different for whatever reason or velocity you don't need as much money because of velocity or whatever whatever the reason there's just eras are different people are different generations are different technological advancements globalization deglobalization wars various things happen throughout time maybe in some very short time period time period yes but over long time spans this, this should be fluctuating wildly but that was not the assumption it was assumed that it's some sort of single equation constant, M or V, or which one was the constant? V was the constant, right? And M is what could be fluctuated up and down by central bankers. Right, and that would be the, the, like the, fatal, or the fatal conceit, right? If you thought M was relatively constant because it seemed to be relatively constant, you could make an intuitive case for it to be constant, then all you would have to do is raise or lower V as desired, and you get the the... the the uh, P times Q side of things to work out exactly the way you wanted them to. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case with any of the M's because almost as soon as the M's were derived in the early 1960s, by the late 1960s, it had already been underwritten and under, undertaken. M1 had it basically been made obsolete by the euro dollar system before anybody even really started using M1 in any practical fashion. So already M1's been erased and it ran into the same sort of problem as we're going to see with M2 where in the early 1970s, its velocity seemed to change. Tell us about that. M1. Why did M1 seem like the, velo what the velocity was being backed into as increasing rapidly? Is that right? Because the economy was expanding. Yeah. We and don't velocity actually... was surging. Go on. Yeah, no, it's just that we don't actually observe velocity, right? It's, it's sort of a derived variable. Like we calculate P times Q... And then divide M gives us our V. It's sort of the remainder in the equation, right? We solve for V. It's not like we can independently verify it in, in any empirical fashion. So what happens is the nominal economy, obviously in the great inflation, was surging, but the level of M1 was growing, but not growing by the same amount. Therefore, again, because velocity is a remainder variable here, Velocity appeared to be rising and rising rapidly, well outside any kind of statistical range or any confidence range, 
which suggested something was going on here. In reality, it wasn't that velocity was rising. It was the calculation showing that M1 was no longer a relevant variable to the actual economy. And the, the economists and central bankers had the same problem from the other side, which was forecasting M1 money demand, which always seemed to be coming up short. And how we reconcile all of these inconsistency is by realizing that the nominal economy was growing and M1 money supply was not growing as fast because the real economy participants, the banking system, were, were inventing new forms of money that the real economy was using in addition to M1. So there were broader forms of money that M1 didn't capture that actually explained how velocity didn't really fall off or velocity didn't really, really rise and demand, money demand didn't really fall off. We were just calculating it wrong because the M had changed. We didn't know all the M's. We didn't know all the M's, but we thought we only had M1 to worry about. If we had all the M's, then maybe nothing really would have changed. Okay. Thankfully, they learned their mistake and they updated with a new thing called M2. And that story that you Problem just- Problem solved. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <Right>? that didn't <laughs> happen after. again with Mr. Greenspan, where we saw all of a sudden M2 suddenly rise in 1990, just as the Latin American debt crisis was being resolved with the Brady bonds and the Soviet Union was collapsing, globalization was taking off and, and something Solomon Brothers was doing. M2 velocity surged. Is it the same? Just problem? like M1 had or 20 years before. All of a sudden, and remember the, the, the other part of this, which was sort of our central point here, is that also in the late 1980s, as M1, as, as M2 velocity mm. started to increase unexpectedly, we had the SNL crisis. Okay. Now, why does that matter? Because what we're really talking about with M1 and M2 is sort of deposit, domestic depository forms of money, things like deposit balances, uh, checking accounts, whatnot. And as the, the SNL crisis developed, especially in 1988 and 1989 going forward, what that represented was a fundamental change in banking. That was sort of the last hurrah of the depository way of bank, doing banking. Because as in addition, or beforehand, before the SNL crisis, we had this rapid rise in what were used to be called commercial banking. There used to be that very distinction because it was a very, it was a very bright distinction in the way these banks behaved as well as the monetary forms they used to fund their activities. Uh, the commercial bank, which is more of a securities dealer firms, the Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley's of the world, they funded their operations using wholesale interbank money rather than strictly depository money that might be captured at M2. So as the SNL crisis developed and, M and these depository types of banks started to fall off at the margins, it wasn't a surprise that M2 money supply started to decline, which meant that because the economy didn't suffer a Great Depression in the early 1990s, that M2 velocity seemed to be rising in a way that didn't make sense to Alan Greenspan or economists. When in reality, what was happening was the same thing that happened to M1. M2 velocity wasn't rising. There were still other forms of money the real economy was using that banks had dreamt up with these wholesale forms that as these commercial banking and as the commercial banking way of doing business ascended in the early 1990s, obviously those forms of money they used took over the marginal influence over the real economy. So M2 velocity didn't actually rise. It was again, this transformation which showed that M2 was no longer sufficient to capture what was really going on. You've now transitioned to another article. You can, the audience can find it on uh, the Alhambra Investments website. 
is M2 the money behind inflation? If not, what is or isn't? That was posted on the 15th of November. Jeff, you note that one organization was trying to identify, define, measure, map, money, credit, collateral as best they could, and that was Morgan Guarantee. And you have some estimates here, this chart that shows what M1 was, what M2, M3, and that those estimates were already higher. You know, the Morgan Guarantee measures of this offshore Eurodollar system, they were showing what was not being captured in the official statistics. And you tell us that they gave up because they knew they were not capturing everything. They were, this was like a, a light estimate. And it was already way ahead of where M3 was. Right. And that was the 1980s, right? We're talking about the late yes. 1980s. That was the chart that I showed in that article was actually from a speech I gave back in uh, June, I think it was. And it was really talking about the evolution of money and how M2 has been misleading for many, many decades before we even get to the, the global financial crisis. And the reason is because of this other stuff outside of M2, this other, these other monetary forms, that even though the Federal Reserve didn't sanction or didn't include it in a monetary aggregate, the real economy was using it. And when we say the real economy, we are not just talking about the United States. We're obviously talking about the rest of the global economy too, because this, this global dollar, this offshore dollar system was the reserve currency for the entire global economy. So as Morgan Guarantee had done for decades before 1988, they tried to keep up track or at least put together some kind of, compile some kind of data on this Euro currency market and even just some of its most primitive forms, what they found out was that by 1980 or the early 1980s, this other euro currency market, which is all euro dollars on the other side of euro dollar transactions, was about as big as M2 and M3 had been in the early 1980s. Fast forward to 1988, and the euro currency market was a third larger than the entire depository domestic money supply, M2 or M3. So... We have vastly more sums of euro currency, whatever that is, and, and outside the United States by the late 1980s that, that helps us explain this velocity puzzle, which really isn't a velocity puzzle. It's an evolving M. M1 was outdated a long time before then. M2 came to be outdated long before the 1990s. It just didn't show up as easily. And then you go forward in the, in the 1990s, which was an era where the Federal Reserve threw up its hands and said, we can't even keep track of money ourselves, so we're not even going to bother. And that's really the point here is that M2 was obsoleted long before the 1990s. The, the, this change in velocity in the early 90s was just simply the last sign that you couldn't depend on M2 for any realistic representation of what's going on in the actual money supply because money had evolved so drastically. Let's talk about modern day. The 2020 crisis and thereafter we saw a surge in M2. And that's often pointed to as a reason that there's a lot of money in the system and therefore inflation, of course. What is your interpretation of uh, the surge in M2? What can we take away from it? Well, I think we talked about M2 once before, before we got to the CPIs this year, when we said, look, I think it was January, maybe February earlier this year, we, we looked at M2 and said, you know, M2 rose dramatically. I mean, it was almost a 30% increase in you know, March, April, and May, I think up to June 2020. And here we were in early 2021, and we hadn't seen any sign of inflation yet. So where's all the money? And then, of course, the CPI started to go crazy. And that's where everybody said, aha, 
there's the there's the inflation. The money printing happened. It just maybe it took a little bit longer. We don't really know why. Maybe it took a little bit longer. But now we're connecting these high CPIs with that high rate of growth in M2. And there's the money printing. There's the inflation. Therefore, we are going into the 1970s again. And our point here is that M2 is misleading, even if the CPIs are high in 2021. That has nothing to do with M2 because M2 doesn't really tell you very much about the real economy. It certainly doesn't tell you anything about the offshore shadow money world, which in any number of real-time signals, as we just went over in the first segment of this episode, are all screaming tight money and deflation. And then, you know, we can go back to 2008, which I think is a perfect uh, preceding example, when in the late latter stages of 2007 and early 2008, leading up to Bear Stearns, M2 money supply growth surged. The great financial, the global financial crisis of 2008 you saw money supply, according to M2, dr- dramatically rise, leading up to the failure of Bear Stearns and what was one of, up to that point, one of the most poignant and worst examples of a monetary insufficiency and monetary tightness before the Great Depression. And then it happened again, starting in the, the actually the week after Lehman Brothers and AIG and Wachovia in September 28, in 2008, M2 money supply surged even more. In an unusual fashion, I think it was something like 7% in about uh, four months, three months, whatever it was, is a huge surge of M2 money supply during the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Not just the worst financial crisis, the worst part of the worst financial crisis, the worst monetary crisis since the Great Depression, M2 was through the roof. So already you should know, as we had known in the early 1990s, that M2 doesn't really tell you anything meaningful about actual monetary conditions in the real economy because it's been outdated for decades. It's it's too narrow in its definition. We're seeing a surge in one narrow area of money. What about the bigger picture? Well, we look at the Treasury International Capital Report, bond yields, euro dollar futures, all manner of other things, and that's signaling the things we can't see in the shadows. You no, know, and I think, yes. you know, we wish there was an M4 or an M5 or M whatever, an L as they used to try to, they used to try to look to determine. But, you know, you know, having done this for a lot of years, I can tell you that, you know, even if we could come up with a modern version of an M aggregate that was reflective and representative of the real monetary condition, it wouldn't, it would be outdated by tomorrow. You know, there's it seems in one in one sense, there's really no point in doing these M's because the system evolves over time. And, it is, and sometimes it evolves very quickly. And I wonder how can, how can you stick the entire collateral securities lending system inside of an M anyway? It's really one of those things where you step back and say, you know, it was a good idea. You know, the equation of exchange was a good idea. Maybe there's some noble purpose in trying to you know work through these economic processes in your head to do thought experiments and think about them that way, but they're just, it, it, it's, it's entirely impractical. That's uh, what many of the comments are about this show. Good idea, but just impractical. And ladies and gentlemen, you can leave those kind of comments in hate mail, death threats, ransom notes in the YouTube section or on Apple Podcast reviews you can, or on Twitter. You can find Jeff at Jeff Snyder underscore AAP and me at Emil Kalinowski. Jeff, I had a good time, and uh, I'll talk to you next week. All right. Take care, Emil.